Genesis chapter 2. I apologize, we, I tried printing out the little handouts, but the, uh, there's some error on it and it didn't print them out, there's just a bunch of like error numbers on it and so uh, small group leaders, we're up to four, we're done, or before you, I'll try to text you the questions, that's helpful to you, but uh, I kind of uh, called today's message the first wedding because that is what we are looking at in Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> I um I feel like I need to preface this every time I talk about a big topic like marriage or creation or just about anything really. Um, there is so much written, good, helpful things on the topic of marriage that it's impossible for me to share everything I'd like to share in just thirty to thirty-five minutes. But um, we're going to look at the first wedding in the garden, and just to remember that when we look at Genesis two, sin has not yet entered into God's creation. Things were perfect. Things were good. Things were as God designed. And when we see things as God designed, we have to think that that, that is God's intended way for how things are to be. Um, the, the marriage we see in Genesis 2 is the picture for a healthy marriage, even still today, even though we are flawed and we are sinful. And no other picture of marriage outside of this image would we say is God-glorifying or leads to the health and well-being and the flourishing of humans. Um, and you'll see why I say all that in a minute. So let's just read the passage. I'll pray again because it's always good to pray. Always good to pray. Um, our lives don't function well when we don't pray. So let's start in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not, a found, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we consider your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see a better God-glorifying view of marriage. Uh, Father, I pray that you would change our perceptions about this institution. And we ask, Lord, that we would live lives that in all things and all ways, in word, action, or deed, we would seek to glorify and honor you. Hallowed be your name. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. July 10th, 2010. Does anyone know what they were doing? July 10th, 2010. That's approximately eight years and two months ago. I was getting married that day. You were right, Neil. Uh, July 10th. 
I remember waking up that morning and having all my friends there, and um, I couldn't sleep the night before. I went to bed like at 2.30, and I woke up at 7, and you couldn't even tell because I was so just like running on adrenaline that whole day. And, um, and my wife and I uh, took a million pictures, and we talked to people, and more importantly, we walked down, or eh, I guess I walked down too, walked my mom down the aisle. And we walked down an aisle in front of all these people, and we, we said vows, we sang two songs in our ceremony. We sang In Christ Alone. And we also sang this song called Our Great Savior, which is one of my all-time favorite Christian songs. We took communion. Uh, we prayed together. We, uh, we, say, we consummated the marriage later that night. We, we had fun. We, we did everything that was kind of here in Genesis 2. We, 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 we came together. We left our parents, and we became a new union in the sight of God and of man. And when I think about that day, of all the, the, the great memories, one of the best days of my life, maybe the best day of my life, July 10th, 2010, I, I now think of how at times skewed my understanding of marriage was, and at times still is. Um, when I was 21 getting married, I was excited to have a companion, I was excited to not have to cuddle with my pillows at night. I was excited. Um, I did that. I called my pillow Sasha, right? Um, uh, why is that so funny? I thought a lot of people did this. No? I have friends. We talked about it. We named our... our anyways. This is going on the website, so hopefully. Anyways... Um, no, Amy, you can ask Amy. She's like, no more Sasha, right? When we got married. I was like, yeah, good. Um, but um, I was excited to um, always go somewhere and know that I always had someone there with me. I, I liked the feeling of not being alone. I liked knowing that there was someone who's going to be there for me. And when I had a bad day, I can come and talk to them. And, and even though I was a Christian, I was pursuing pastoral ministry. Um, I still think that I looked to marriage to fill me in ways that only God can fill me. I thought that marriage was going to finally take away all of my struggle with sexual sin. I'm not going to be stressed anymore. Uh, I'll finally be, taking, be taken seriously as an adult because I have a wife. And, and, and I kind of thought it would just bring about a wholeness to my life. And, and, and as great as marriage is... Um, I think when you look at our society, it is completely misunderstood. Now, let me say something. I think every generation since the fall has had a skewed and warped view of this institution that God made. Did you guys just notice so far in Genesis, the very first thing that God instituted with man is the covenant of marriage. This is an important thing. This is actually on day six of creation. So we're still talking within the, in the scope of creation. The very first thing that God institutes with man is the covenant of marriage. And when you think of all the centuries, thousands and thousands of years ago, marriage has been something that has either been taken far too seriously 
and we elevate it to this ungodly position where it's the end-all, be-all. And I still know people like this where, where marriage is the most important thing and God forbid we have any legislation against God's view of marriage. But then we have all of the other swing where marriage is completely misunderstood. Let me just give you guys a little bit of insight into the culture that you live in. Right? Here, here, is, here is the culture and the worldview that you're being presented every single day. It is an idolization of self, self-fulfillment. Do what is good for you. Make yourself happy. Therefore, in a worldview where it's all about you and not about the tribe or, or a community or a family, when everything is about your personal fulfillment and happiness, marriage becomes something that is a means to your happiness, where I only get married because I can finally now have sex, or I can finally have a better status, or I can finally have someone who's going to have kids with me, or I'm finally going to have someone who's going to provide or give me security. Or do, but you see the problem with that is that marriage becomes something where you give me something. And in essence, what we, what we end up kind of thinking about is marriage being this institution where I just want you to provide what I really need. And I don't want to say that marriage doesn't provide any of those things. But what I'm trying to get at is that um, in our society right now, marriage has been reduced down to as long as you give me what I want, then I'll be married. And when I was thinking about talking about marriage to high schoolers, I realized that some of you are kind of close to marriage. You know, maybe it's not more than three, four years away, two, three years away, right? Some of you might be a little longer, Right, five, ten years, that's fine. But I want you guys to know that, that this is a very important thing. I mean, just for the very fact that, that right when God makes man and woman, what does he do? It begins with a marriage, right there in the garden. And so what I'd like to do is I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about what is happening in this first um, wedding that we see with Adam and Eve, and, and, and why is it happening? And then I want to just draw a few implications for us. And I want you guys to be thinking, right? Think about the marriages you, you see. Think about the weddings you've been to. Think about the things you see on TV. I mean, as much as we love a good, uh, what do we call them, chick flick or romantic comedy, like I love, I love uh, You Got Mail with uh, Tom Hanks. Like, I'll just say it. It's a good movie. As much as we love those movies that draw us into that romance, I just want us to be convinced that the way God has instituted and designed marriage is not the way we see it a lot of times in our culture. So um, I got two points and then a few implications after that, okay? So do me a favor. Go ahead and look down at verse 18. So again, uh, this is day six of creation. All of chapter two is day six of creation. We're getting a zoomed-in account. And by the way, day six for Adam is a really busy day, right? So one day you're created, you name all the animals, and you get married. That sounds like a lot happening in one day, right? And it sounds like his bachelor party was naming all the animals. But um, verse 18, um, again, think this is a narrative story. So in any story, you need, you need some kind of like tension. You need a plot. You need some foil. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. What's, what's fascinating about those words? What's that? Exactly. Everything in creation so far has been, it was good. It was good. It was good. And then you come across these words, it was not good. Whoa. There's something different about this, right? What was not good? That the man should be alone. 
I will make a helper fit for him. Now, here's the thing. Right after this, we get this little weird thing where God parades all the animals in front of him, and Adam starts naming them. And you got to think, like, why'd you name a spider a spider, and why'd you name a giraffe a giraffe, and all these things. But um, he did, so be it, all those things. But I think, in essence, what God was doing is he was showing all these animals and kind of creating this longing for Adam. As he's looking at all these animals, like, nope, nope, nope. And you kind of get this sense right when Adam sees this in verse 23, he sees his wife. This, this poetic little thing comes out of Adam. This at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That you get this impression that Adam was desperately longing for this helper. And so what does God do? Verse 20. Uh, no, excuse me. Um, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And every, every time I read that... Thinking about um, marriages and honeymoons, I'll tell you a really quick story. I, this is not my notes. I don't know if I have time for it. But July 11th, we hop on a boat for a cruise, right, 2010. And we go down to Mexico for seven days. And it was really awesome. But one night, they had this, like, hypnotist, right? And it's, like, 500 people on this cruise show uh, watching this hypnotist. And I convinced this guy to let me get up there. And he's going to try to hypnotize me. And I promise you, I tried to do all the things, like, Okay, breathe really heavily, count to this thing out, snap, and your head goes down. And I was faking the entire time. Like, so he's like, you will fall asleep now. And I just would fall asleep, right? So, um, but some people actually next to me, like, they actually did get hypnotized. And he would clap, he would, like, snap their fingers, and they were just, like, like a, like a bag of potatoes, like, just, like, and I faked the entire, I have a video of it, if you want to show me later, like me doing a Michael Jackson thing. People think I'm hypnotized the entire time, right? For like 45 minutes. In my mind, I'm thinking, these people are on vacation. I need to love them by giving them a good show. And I'm just going to be a good trooper here and pretend. It's probably one of my, my highest moments in life, right? Marriage, the next day, pretending to be hypnotized in front of 500 people. Um, it was up there. It's pretty great. But anyways, I see Adam like walking around, and the Lord like snaps his finger like hypnotist, and he's just like, ooh. All of that, when I read that, that's what I think. I think of the guy, like, snapping his fingers. Sorry, that was really distracting. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon this man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, do me a favor. Glance back over at Genesis 1, verse 27. Right? So we already have, we've already talked about this a little before. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, here's what I want to say. Just because Adam was created first does not mean that there is a higher ranking or authority or value to that. It's simply part of God's reflection. And just as God has always been the father to his son, that they're, they're equal, that doesn't mean that there's a sense of that there's more importance there. So even though the woman came from the man, there's still this, this, this idea that God's fullness in humanity is seen not in just one sex, but in two, both in male and female. And so here's my first point. Here's what I'm all trying to say right here, that God is the person who instituted marriage Marriage is not something that man just constructed where, where a few centuries later after Adam and Eve, people think like, hey, we should just like have these like really long, 
monogamous relationships with each other, and this will actually help society be a little better. It's not like philosophers just wrote this down. Marriage is a good idea for society. God instituted it. He is the inventor of marriage. And you want to know something? God doesn't make anything that is bad. God instituted it. In verse 18, we see God, not man, who is not okay with man's solitude. Do you see that in verse 18? The Lord God said it was not good. And more than that, we see that that it was kind of God's central design and plan in creation to have a marriage, not just man and woman. So Tim Keller, really helpful. If you, if you want to read a book on marriage one day, or even today, I, I think it's always good to, to think ahead a little bit. The best book I could ever recommend on marriage is called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And there's something that he says um, about this passage that is really helpful. He says this, God devised marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ. We'll talk about that in a second. To refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. So here is what's so beautiful about God's institution of marriage, is that he did not create two identical people. He created two opposite sexes, as we would say, who have different but complementary roles, right? There are things that God has given the responsibility to Adam that he's not given to Eve. Now, think for a second. We haven't got to Genesis 3. We will the next two weeks. But who is the first person to take of the forbidden fruit? Who takes it off the tree? Eve. And she gives to her husband. But when God came down, who did he talk to first? Adam. Why? Because Adam was given the responsibility to lead, which is so funny because one moment Adam's like, this last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The next minute he's like, you gave her to me. (laughs) See how quickly the roles kind of reverse there? Adam is called to lead the marriage, right? And so sometimes we, we, people want to just like laser in on this passage and, and talk about, you know, modern feminism and how male and female should have the absolute equality and everything, equality and everything. But roles are different. And so God is the one who institutes this, and he, and he creates the design for it, that the man should lead, right? Which is why in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so I like what Tim Keller says. The design of marriage is, is multifaceted. It's to create a stable community for children it's to be a way to sanctify us. Because you want to know something? Marriage is glorious, but it takes guts. It is, let me tell you, one of the hardest things in the world at times to fight for a good marriage. When you see your parents at times on a vacation, kind of getting into their threats a little bit, have grace, grace and patience and kindness and wait till you get married one day. Mm-hmm. Right? Because two sinners trying to to live out faithfully what God has called them to do, sometimes it's not always very intuitive. It's actually very hard. And so here's what I want to say. Uh, um, When a couple gets up there at a wedding and they speak their vows and they consummate their, their vows later with sexual union, it's not the woman 
It's not the man. It's not even the pastor who's saying all the words, who is the primary actor in bringing two people together. It is God. God is the center of the marriage. God is the one who brings the woman to the man. Do you guys catch that? Look at verse verse 22. And the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and what did he do? He brought her to the man. Do we see that at all in, in weddings? We see the father of the bride bringing the daughter down to the groom and giving her, giving him the daughter, right? The same way God at the first wedding, what do we see? God kind of fathering Eve and bringing her to the man, right? God is the one who instituted all this. He's the one in any marriage who brings them together and makes them spiritually into one union. You see, when I think about this idea of marriage, of them becoming one flesh, how God instituted that way, Tim Keller said it's a reflection of us in Christ. Now, Paul later in the New Testament would say, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. And so, in essence, what we talk about, I mentioned this a few weeks ago in our back-to-school sermonettes, our union with Christ, that I am in him and he is in me. That when we put faith in Jesus, it is no longer us, but Christ living in us. What's so significant about that? It doesn't mean that I'm a completely different person. I still like steak, and I still like to play golf, and I I still am the way I am. I make jokes about snuggling with pillows and, and all these things. But here's the thing. God sees me as one with Christ. And in the same way, in a marriage that God instituted, when he brings a man and a woman together, although they don't change their personalities or their tastes or their preferences, spiritually speaking... They are one. God sees them as one. Therefore, good advice to married couples that to care for yourself is to care for your spouse, which is why God hates divorce because in essence, what it shows is a separation. And there can never be a separation for those who are in Christ. And so marriage here is all about God's perfect plan because of what it reflects. And that's my second point. What does marriage reflect? Marriage is for God's glory. So the first point is marriage is the doing of God. The second point is this, that marriage is the display of God. Do me a favor. Look down again at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, to be a good Bible st- student, we should ask, what kind of relationship is being described here? This idea of one flesh. Will they, um, how exactly are they being held together? Can they walk away from this relationship? Can they go from spouse to spouse? Is the relationship only rooted in romance? Is it designed for sexual desire that God has made us biological in that sense? Is it Marriage like this, uh, one flesh, designed for companionship. So you're not bored always, right? Was Adam walking around and just needed someone to play tic-tac-toe with? So here you go, right? Well, why exactly does marriage display the glory of God? And we need to go to the New Testament for that. So do me a favor. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5.
So, in Ephesians 5, we'll look at verse 31. Paul actually quotes the verse we just read in Genesis 2, and he says something really interesting about it. And in essence, here's the joy and the comfort of being a New Testament believer, that we actually get an insight into the mystery of what is being said about that union. So look down at Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is what I love about Paul. This mystery is profound. Like, this is insane. I don't really know how this works. This is crazy that the two become one. It's a mystery. It's profound. And I'm saying, what is he saying? That it refers to Christ and the church. So when God instituted the first marriage to be a picture of all the other marriages, do you know what he was doing? He was already beginning to show how this institution, the very first institution that got me with man, is going to be a picture of Christ's faithfulness, love, and grace to the true people of God, the church, his bride. See, here's what, here's what marriage conveys. Unconditional love. I'm going to love you when it's hard. I'm going to love you when it's easy. I'm going to be there in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor, for anything that happens, as long as we both shall live, I'm going to love you. And see, you think about that for a second. Think about two people who, in thick and thin, are faithful, committed. They're patient. They're kind. They don't envy. They don't assume. They show equity to each other. Over and over and over again, Paul's saying that is a picture of the gospel, of how Christ treats us, of how Christ, no matter what, is looking to his bride, and they bring nothing to him, but he continues to say, come, come. And so here's the thing, guys, listen. Marriage is much more than a desire for sexual intimacy. It is much more for a desire of financial security. It is much more for a desire to have kids. But this first wedding that we see in Adam and Eve, they're to point to the sacred covenant rooted in the covenants that they stand against. Every single storm, every single good thing that they have, they are showing their commitment to the covenant that God has for us. And so, it was Christ who knew that he would one day have to pay the dowry of his own blood for his redeemed bride. It was Christ who knew that this relationship that he would start with the people of God would be called the new covenant. And so here's the most ultimate thing we can say about this first wedding, about any wedding, about any marriage, is that marriage exists for the glory of God. And therefore, to all of you married people and the one-day married people, so hopefully all of us, The highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is this. To put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. Because here's the thing. If you think that marriage is simply about these warm, fuzzy feelings and having this deep romance and falling in love with someone via instant messenger and living the rest of your, your 
days and and you know wedded bliss. Uh, talk to any of those actors. Talk to anyone who's married. That that just it's not reality, right? Which is why we say love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. Lo- love is when Jesus says love your enemies. Do you know what he's saying? Treat your enemies with patience and kindness and forgive them and forbear with them and do anything that Christ has done for you. And so if God has designed marriage to display his glory and God is the one who orchestrates all weddings, what are some implications for you? What are some implications for us of how we should treat marriage? First one, marriage is not about staying in love. It's very sad to see how many books on marriage, of fighting for your marriage, are designed to just try to create more romance. Now, here's the thing. I think one of the blessings and one of the grace of marriage is the romance. I mean, having a good marriage, there's nothing that can be compared to it. Having a bad marriage, there's nothing that can be compared to that either. But, you know, that, that, that romantic love that we all think about, the eros love of, of marriage, like, yes, that's great and that's wonderful. And there's a whole book of the Bible designed about that very type of love. It's called Song of Songs, right? And, and that is God designed. And that also is a picture of God's glory, of how intense God's love for us is. But here's the thing. Marriage is not ultimately about trying to just have this feeling of love. And just think for a second. Think of all the reasons people today get married. People get married because um, they're forced to, right? People get married because they think that uh, it'll make them happy. People get married because they want a, a more secure financial situation. People get married because they want more sex. People get married because X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. But what we learn from this passage is that, that we shouldn't approach marriage with our own selfish agendas, Right? And you think, how do I do that? How do I desire marriage without having any desire of its good intended consequences? Which a lot of those are. Here's why. If you know that going into marriage is going to be a hard thing, that the Lord is going to use your marriage probably more than anything else in your life to sanctify you, that marriage is for me to be a picture of showing God's great faithfulness to his people, then I know that marriage isn't just about my personal autonomous happiness, you know? Marriage isn't just so that one day I can just have the good American dream. And I think once you can kind of begin to see God's intended purpose for it, you begin to actually look for people and a spouse that wants that same vision. They're going to be committed to having a marriage that reflects the glory of God. I don't want to be in a marriage that's just functionally really great. I want to be in a marriage where people look at us and say, man, that what a great marriage where they love each other unconditionally and faithfully. He lays down his life for his wife. She respects and submits to, his, to her husband. Right? Like, I want a marriage that shows the great love of Christ. Second implication is this. I kind of said it already. Marriage is not about self-fulfillment. Another quote by, actually very similar to the first point, but anyways. Um, another great quote by Tim Keller he says this, um, talking about past cultures. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and, being, uh, and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment 
and self-actualization. Here's what you need to know as a Christian. Ready for this? Denying yourself and killing the sin in you and saying no to the wants and desires of your life do not lead to death, but actually lead to life. See, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Right? Die to self. Come and follow me. Count the cost. Right? Here's the thing. In our society, though, we are told that the needs we want are psychological needs. We are told that the desires we have, we need to fulfill them to be happy. But you know what the Bible says? If it's not a need, your desire to want is actually something that you should die to. And you should actually live a life where you live for others and not yourself. And you don't look to other people to be the, 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 the things or the, or the people to fulfill you. You know, something I, I say to myself all the time to fight against lust, to fight against selfishness, to fight against bitterness, is I say this, Aaron, people were not designed for your pleasure. People were not created for your glory. People are designed to, to bear their glory of God. So when, when I look to people to fill me in ways that they were never designed to do, I begin to lust after them. I begin to try to control them. I begin to, to do things where I distort who they are as image bearers. But if we come to see how marriage is not about self-actualization, but God's glory, we actually, you know what we get to do? Love our neighbors well. Third point is this. Consider more about being the right spouse than finding the right spouse. Some of you, like those uh, desires for companionship, desires for sexual in intimacy, desires to be married and have a family, they're, they're alive and, and, and the juices are pumping and all those things. And we, a lot of us, I'm, I'm sure, want to have a good, meaningful marriage. And, and we kind of thinking about dating or we like this person and all these things. And I just want you to know, like, uh, marriage is still far away. So I don't feel like you have to, like, start tomorrow planning your wedding or anything like that. Unless you're Blake and Kimberly, right? Um, but, but here's what I'd say. So many people focus on just trying to find the right person. Right? And we have a whole culture designed around dating where we kind of try someone out for a little bit. If it doesn't work out, if it gets awkward, we just kind of discard them and we go to the next. And instead of just trying to find someone who you think is going to make me happy, right? they're attractive, they're smart, right? they, 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 they're easy to talk to, well, what, what if instead of trying to find people who fill us, we actually become the people who reflect this type of God given glory. That like Christ, we lay down our lives for other people. That we begin to model the, the image of Christ who is patient and kind and loving. And, and so my, my practical advice to you is don't seek too hard to find the right person. Seek to be the right person. Seek to be the person who someone says, man, a marriage of that person would be the best. Because we would glorify God together. We would, we would serve Christ together. So, all that said, do me one, one last time. Go to Genesis 2. We'll look at one last thing here.
One last thing. Look at verse 24. Chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One of the most beautiful things about marriage is that you have this close proximity intimacy and there be no shame. Sadly, the next page over, when sin comes, what do they do? They clothe themselves. They're aware of their nakedness, right? And one of the um, longest-running biblical imageries of the gospel is this idea of clothing, right? Because we are shamed, because we are sinful. And the beautiful thing about this is that in verse 25, in our marriage with Christ as a church, we are restored to this original idea that before God, we can be naked, not ashamed. Why? Because Christ in his perfect righteousness comes and he clothes us. You see, marriage from the very beginning in the garden, what was it meant to reflect? Christ's love for us in the gospel. You see, verse 25 was desperately lost in the fall. But in Christ, do you want to know something, guys? You can be known for who you are and not be ashamed. A lot of you, you want to know something? You hide things. You're behind masks, right? Like, we don't want people knowing what we think. We don't want people knowing how we feel about things. But let me tell you something. God knows everything about you. And what I'm telling you that is because of Christ's righteousness, you don't have to be ashamed anymore. Marriage is designed by God. It's designed to display the glory of God. And it's all pointing us to the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message. Um, Pray, Father, that we would treat marriage as a sacred institution that you've given us. We pray, Father, that we would uh, see that it is not designed just for our happiness, but it is designed for your glory. Father, I pray for the future marriages of these students. I pray, Lord, that they would grow into a relationship with Jesus where even in their marriage, Lord, they want to glorify and honor you. Lord, I pray that we would all learn to deny the sin of self-love, that we would deny the sin of self-actualization and learn, Father, to see living for Christ means dying to ourselves and dying to what we want. And and Lord, I, I ask that you give us wisdom to know how to live all of these things out in the small and complicated nuances of life. But Lord, we just pray with simple hearts of faith that we would reflect your glory, that we would as your creations, Lord, honor you. And Father, most of all, we thank you for the hope and the joy there is in the gospel, that we can be naked and not ashamed because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.